Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Sävos. How are you? I'm happy as we today are, are going to speak to Carter Johnson, the founder and manager of MCJ Capital Partners. We met Carter in, in Omaha actually over dinner earlier this year and, and realized we have a common interest in serial acquirer companies. We definitely have. And for today's episode, our guest has selected the book Distant Force, a memoir of the Teledyne Corporation and the man who created it, written by Dr. George A. Roberts and published in 2007. Here comes our conversation with Carter Johnson. Welcome to the podcast, Carter, and thank you for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And where are you today? Um, I'm in Denver, Colorado. So, uh, you know, it's or it's November when we're recording this. We're getting to those points where we're starting to get a few uh, snow flurries out here. Nice. And let's start with your passion for investing. How did it begin? Yeah. So um, I kind of I caught the bug early on. I was always, you know, starting these little businesses and side hustles. And um, when I was 12, I took uh, some money I made from a, a little lawn company I had and I I opened up a brokerage account in my stepdad's name and I was I was kind of off and running and just, you know, learning on my own and, and, and having fun and in the process. And today I have chosen the book Distant Force. Why is that? Yeah. So for me, uh, when I analyze companies, I spend a lot of time on the qualitative analysis components of it. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I really love serial acquirers. So diving into distant force and, and studying the internal workings of one of the best serial acquirers out there. Um, for me, that was really time well spent, um, especially just helping with overall pattern recognition of, uh, of companies. And some people of our, some of our listeners are, of course, familiar with Teledyne, uh, but some are not. And in the book, the, the company is described as one of the most outstanding corporate success stories in the history of American business. So uh, how much value did shareholders in Teledyne gain during Henry Singleton's time at the helm? Yeah, so Singleton started the company in uh, 1960, went pu- public in 1961. And uh, you can certainly cherry pick a few different decades where returns were better than others. But uh, throughout his reign, he generated a, a 20.4 Kager uh, for shareholders. So um, quite impressive, for sure. Yeah, pretty am- amazing. And uh, his uh, right hand man uh, for, for a lot of, lot of that time was Dr. George A. Roberts, the, the author of, of this book that we're speaking about today. Can you briefly tell us about his role and, and, and about him? Yeah, so Dr. George Roberts, uh, he's another fascinating guy. Um, him and uh, Henry Singleton, they were actually roommates at the U.S. Naval Academy. So they knew each other uh, from their time in college. Um, Roberts started his career at a company called Vasco, uh, did really well there, rose to the ranks of president. And then in mid-60s, um, about six years after Teledyne was founded, uh, him and Henry Singleton negotiated a merger between the two companies. And that brought Dr. George Roberts on board. Um, what I love about Roberts actually writing this book, um, you know, we can get into some critiques and everything, but what, what I really love is he was very much a boots on the ground guy, uh, within the Teledyne operation. So when they were looking at acquisitions, a lot of times he was going out to these facilities, meeting with management, technical staff, um, really learning about the business, what it needed, um, how it worked. So 
uh, he had a really, you know, intuitive feel for the internal operations. Um, and that was my goal when, when, when reading this book was really to understand those internal workings. Uh, eventually after Henry Singleton retired, Dr. Um, George Roberts took over, uh, as, as the president and eventually he, uh, retained the position of chairman of the board until he retired. So super knowledgeable regarding the entire company. And, um, he gives a great firsthand account of, of how a lot of things worked. And a few words maybe about the businesses that Teledyne had, what kind of industries were they in and so on? Yeah. So regarding industries, um, you know, they were very technically heavy. Um, and we can get into that a little bit, uh, with, you know, regards to, to the type of businesses, but, um, they, especially in those, those years in the sixties, um, they were heavily focused on acquisitions of technical companies that would create strategic advantages going after government and military contracts. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about Henry Singleton's strategy with acquisitions, but, um, that's, you know, if you're looking at, at, uh, at, at a broad stroke of the companies that Teledyne largely acquired, it was these niche um, technical expertise. Um, and then the genius of Henry Singleton was he knew how to stitch these things together to create those one plus one equals three type of situations. And some of you listeners might remember the name uh, Singleton from Will Thorndike's uh, great book, The Outsiders, which we discussed with him in episode uh, 30. But uh, Distant Force, it goes even deeper and, and tells more about Henry Singleton as a person. So who was he? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people know him as a, a great capital allocator. Um, a lot of people know that he was, you know, a chess master. Um, I love to study kind of just the, the habits of high performers in general and and, and really peel back the layers and kind of learn more about him. Um, a few observations regarding Henry uh, Singleton. One, the, the guy was actually a health nut and he was ahead of his time. Um, you know, he, he operated it during a period where everybody was just like smoking cigarettes nonstop in, in, in the U.S. And um, he was he was really, uh, he was health conscious to the point where he was, uh, he installed, you know, a corporate gym uh, before that was a thing, right? Like, Nobody was doing that. Um, he would work at a uh, drafting table, so he would be able to, you know, stand up and just get more movement during the day. Um, so that's, I, I thought that was pretty cool. His his devotion to health. Um, the other thing he was he was also a huge computer guy, um, and this was before computers were a main component in uh, the, the workday. And he was always tinkering on a computer, always you know trying to figure the. the newest thing regarding computers out. Um, and he used that a lot within his own day-to-day -day operations, which was, which was pretty interesting. Um, I think my favorite component though, about Henry Singleton. Um, so most people know him, you know, for Teledyne and as a serial acquirer, um, fewer people know that he was, um, he, he was a huge acquirer of land in the United States. Um, especially in the latter part of his his life, uh, he went on a spree where he was just acquiring all these ranches across the uh, western part of the United States. And um, at the time of his death, he was actually the third largest U.S. land owner, uh, which is pretty amazing to think. But but what I find really fascinating is is one of the things that Henry Singleton would do: he would acquire these ranches, um, and then he would essentially take over the function of being uh, the bookkeeper. So he oversaw all the expenses. He signed all the checks. Um, 
And he, he saw this as a form of discipline, but he also saw it as a way to intuitively understand the operations of, of the actual business um, of the ranch. And, and I just think that's such a, a powerful lesson and something that we can replicate as investors. Um, you know, I, I find it uh, really beneficial a lot of times to recreate the financials of a company by hand versus just dumping it into an Excel sheet. Um, you, you pick up on those components that, uh, you know, doing it the hard laborious way, you, you just, you pick up on a little bit more than if you just spit out uh, a model. So I don't know. I, I've always thought that was really interesting when I learned that about Singleton. And when Henry Singleton died in 1999, George Roberts, the author, he, he, he said at the funeral that Henry was much more than a salesman, mathematician, engineer, inventor, and ch- chess champion. He was a student. And is that something that you feel like many of these great leaders have been during, during their time? They have been a student and always wanted to learn. Oh, that's absolutely. I, I think that's a, a constant, you know, and it's not just um, with the great investors. It's, it's also the great operators. Um, Sam Walton comes to mind immediately. He was the same way. He was always learning. Um, and he would, he would go out into the field and look at competitors and, and understand what, what it was that they were doing. Um, obviously Buffett and Munger talk about the values of being a lifelong learner. And, um, it's, yeah, that's, that's such a constant in terms of these high performers. They're just, they're really, they, they enjoy that process of learning. So if we dig a bit deeper into to Teledyne, as you said, it, it, it was a serial acquirer who bought uh, actually 130 companies in eight years between 1961 and 1969, but then actually stopped since uh, prices had run up and, and also that the best companies had been bought. Can you describe how Teledyne thought about acquisitions and what hurdle rate they, they used and so on? Yeah, so um, I mean, if you if you look at the early early days, we'll start at the very beginning um, most of the first moves that Singleton made, um, they were, they were geared towards more asset-based acquisitions. Um, and in particular, Henry Singleton focused on, um, acquisitions that had excess capacity. So he went out and, you know, he would buy a company um, that had a manufacturing plant that had a warehouse that had labor. Um, and once he had that in place, he had everything he needed to then go and bid on these government contracts. Um, and that was, you know, that was a huge, uh, almost like arbitrage of resources, if you will. Uh, he knew how to do that. Um, once he had that in place, um, again, you know, Singleton, he's, he's a chess master. So he, he understood how to move the pieces. Um, and you really see that unfold with kind of his next wave of acquisitions, because this is where he would focus on that, that one plus one equals three in the sense that. He would go out and he would look at companies, figure out what technology um, his current holdings had, and then what technology and, and components he could go out and acquire and make his position that much more competitive in going after these government contracts. Um, so it was really, you know, he had that foresight to actually understand the, the process of bidding on uh, these government and military contracts, but then also how to make uh, them that much more um, competitive in that bid process. Um, once he kind of had that stabilized, he then started moving uh, both upstream and downstream, acquiring manufacturers of these internal components that would go into the end products of Teledyne. So he really had you know vision just across the field, understanding um, where to capture value in that value chain. Um, as 
you know, as the entity swelled larger and larger, um, you really notice that Singleton focused more on the profitability side of acquisitions um, and the diversification. He saw diversification as a way to to minimize over overall risk. Um, so, you, you know, you really start seeing the acquisitions kind of balloon out, expand out into other areas. Um, regarding hurdle rates, you know, uh, one of the things I found interesting is studying uh, Teledyne um, internally one of the things they would mandate is a 20% hurdle rate uh, return on assets uh, for their profit centers and any cash that profit centers, uh, you know, retained as opposed to returning to headquarters, they were required to, to produce that, that 20% hurdle rate. So um, I think headquarters hurdle rate was a little bit different, but uh, that kind of gives you a good sense of, of what um, Singleton was thinking internally in terms of returns that he was trying to generate on capital. And at RedEye, we have this RedEye rating where we use, uh, we have three different categories that our analysts use when they analyze companies. And one is financials and one is business. And we talk a lot about this here. But uh, the first one that we have is people. And Henry Singleton actually said that uh, people were the most important factor in, in a business. So can you talk a bit about how he managed the culture while growing so quickly with m and yeah. Well, I think one of the advantages he has was so much of it was decentralized, right? So um, Singleton was a huge believer of if your people are hitting their marks, let them run their own show, you know, let them, let them do their own thing. Um, and that type of autonomy, I think, was, was really valued as it is today, um, but really valued during that time period. Um, the other thing that I think Henry Singleton did a phenomenal job of is he knew how to make people feel important. And uh, if you look at the organization structure and, and if you look at these, these profit centers, um, the manager of those profit centers, they would actually retain the title of president. And Singleton did this intentionally so that there was this level of credibility um, and respect that those, those individuals would garnish in their, in their community. And he encouraged them to, you know, maintain those local relationships. So maintain a, a local uh, bank, uh, bank account versus going to some national, uh, you know, regional type bank. Um, and then the other thing regarding just making people feel uh, special, uh, he was very much adamant about having, um, up-and-comers and different individuals accompany these profit center presidents to the three meetings that Teledyne would have with their profit centers every year. Um, so again, he was just, you know, bringing, bringing these other individuals so they could see uh, more of how Teledyne worked collectively and, and get to know them and then also understand, you know, if they would be a potential candidate to, to replace um, the, their successor, so to speak. I think it's interesting having followed the, the serial acquirers for for quite a long time and going deep into many of of the Nordic ones. Um, you look at, for example, the differences between some acquirers who who do more of the Buffett approach. I would say just buy good companies and and leave them. Uh, others uh, have a more like industrial logic behind buying companies, and it's clear that Singleton is in in that bucket. I think, and um, I mean. He, I think they. My impression is that they actually bought good companies that were not really connected to that. If they found them, but that was not the key business. Uh, 
And I mean, it seems like he early saw certain trends in the market in terms of semiconductors and so on, and and he wanted to capitalize on on that. Um, can you can you maybe go a bit deeper into that? And and uh, when you look at serial acquirers, how 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 you feel that they differ and and, and why and so on, and and when maybe one way is better than the other, so to speak. Yeah. So well, I think. One of the advantages Singleton had was he understood the backdrop going into the 60s. Um, he understood that World War II had created this catalyst for all these new technologies across American manufacturers. And a lot of these owners were looking to either retire or um, you know, take on capital to grow. And, and Singleton knew he had that environment. And, and um, eventually that became you know, so saturated that that, that opportunity had disappeared and we can talk a little bit about that and how the, the 70s unfolded. But um, again, he had this backdrop. He understood the surplus of these businesses at uh, reasonable valuations that existed. But he also understood how, and I keep saying it, that, that one plus one equals three. He understood how, how to stitch these industrial uh, manufacturers of these technology components together um, to create uh, this, this added gain. And I think that was you know, really, really advantageous, especially in the early years when they were securing these, these government and military contracts. Um, I think nowadays, if you look at some of the best serial acquirers, you know, I, I love following serial acquirers that, that really focus on acquiring these monopolistic players in these super niche markets. And a lot of times those, um, have less expectations of, of integration and, um, creating those one plus one equals three situations, but, uh, you know, they'll maintain that market share. There's a lot more durability there. And, um, I would almost argue under that model, there's a little bit longer of a runway because you can keep finding these, these niches as opposed to being dependent on creating those value adds with, uh, synergies of stitching multiple companies together. So those would be my thoughts at least on that. I mean, just just thinking about it as an investor, um, I I can just imagine how difficult it must have been to as a as an investor to hold on to this stock when, uh, I mean, first they they bought all these companies and and the whole playbook was was around uh, growing through acquisitions and and then it just flipped and uh, I mean, yeah, uh, it it definitely worked as as we will hear more about, but uh, yeah, it's well, and to your point, you think about it, it's. Uh... The 60s, that was the go-go era. Conglomerates were the, you know, they were the fat, they were the technology companies of, of this most uh, recent bull, bull market. Um, so to, to differentiate between Teledyne and these other conglomerates, I mean, you really had to, to think that you had something special with, with uh, Henry Singleton. Um, and to your point, it, it would have been pretty difficult, I think, to hold on, especially once you hear that, Singleton and Roberts are shutting down this acquisition machine that over the decade has produced these tremendous returns. And and at that moment, they also did something else inspired by General Motors, a book that he has read, uh, Singleton. Then he diversified into insurance and financial operations because he wanted to ensure financing in, in these tough times that he were was thinking coming. But who would have guessed that would turn out so well? Right, right. And it wasn't, it wasn't, the easiest um transition uh either you know there were there were some mishaps there 
um, they took on some insurance that had a lot more long tail risk than what they realized and ended up having to, um, to take a hit there. Um, but yeah, they, I think, again, that's one of the things, and I think what makes Henry Singleton so impressive in terms of a capital allocator, he knew how to work both sides of the balance sheet. He knew um, how to find value in whatever it was he was doing, um, and he was adaptable. So he didn't, you know, he just didn't have one lever in terms of, hey, we're just going to do acquisitions. Um, you know, we can talk about it, how he bought back stocks, he issued dividends, he, uh, you know, did some creative things with bonds. Um, so he had a lot of tools in his in his tool belt. And the 60s gave us a, a glimpse of, of that acquisition side. And if we go deeper into the, the, the fact that, uh, as you stated, that one plus one equal three, uh, a lot about about this is about how to add value as an owner, and uh, the author describes a lot about the method the company used to to manage the different business use units and to track the progress and branding of the business units and so on. So, if we start with managing the business units, can you can you tell us a bit about the methods uh, Teledyne used? Yeah, that that to me was the most impressive, and that's really what I enjoy digging into. Um, so, first off, when you know Teledyne was acquiring companies, a lot of times they would pursue acquisitions where the owner was looking for retirement. So they were, they're going to leave the business. Um, and this fit, this fit well for Teledyne, they would actually go in, they would do an acquisition. Um, and then they would place a corporate accountant to initially take over management. Um, and what this would do is this would create and allow a time period where they could create this uniform financial and reporting standard. Um, and uh, a guy by the name, actually George Ferensky, I believe, he was the one who designed the financial and operating reporting system. Uh, and keep in mind when I go through this, this is a time period when <laughs> people weren't firing off emails and, and having um, you know cloud-based uh, spreadsheets operate or update in real time. So it just makes all this that much more impressive. But um, if you look at the system they had for managing these entities, um, all of the profit centers, they had a comptroller uh, that reported directly to both the profit center president as well as the corporate comptroller. And um, all, of, all of the banking was local. You know, again, Singleton was big on, on maintaining those local relationships. But on Fridays, these comptrollers would actually figure out what it was they needed in terms of cash for the next week. And headquarters corporate would either deposit that um, or if there was excess that would be returned to corporate and so they really created this this nice tight feedback loop of essentially one week going forward um, in addition all of the fiscal months for teledyne's profit centers they would end on a friday and what's really really impressive is the fiscal months would end on a friday and then reports on those profit centers would be generated and available on tuesday of the next week so quite the turnaround for an entity that size with that many different moving parts and in a time period again where um, it's, it's not like you were just firing off emails left and right uh, to get stuff done. Uh, so that was, that was pretty, I found that system pretty fascinating. Um, the other component that was really dialed in was that, um, again, Singleton believed like, hey, let people do their job. You don't need to interfere on the day to day, but they would have three meetings per year with their profit centers. Um, and these meetings were broken into a capital asset plan where the company would go over what 
what they needed in terms of CapEx, um, what they were thinking in, in terms of any acquisitions that they were looking at, um, and then also their research budget. So they would have this capital asset plan meeting, and then they would also have a profit plan meeting, which typically occurred about two months uh, prior to their fiscal year starting. And then they would have a profit plan two meeting just to basically uh, reflect on that current profit plan, how it was going, and then make it, uh, adaptions for the remainder of the year. So for the most part, they left these these uh, these business units um, left them to, to take care of the day-to-day -day and, and didn't interfere there. Um, from a structural component, the design of Teledyne was also pretty interesting. Um, they would move all of patent and legal to headquarters. Uh, and then eventually down the road in the 70s, they created an in-house advertising um, division that that really just serviced all the profit centers and, and saved some money on synergies and whatnot there. Um, and then another thing they did in the 70s was they created these actual international marketing offices. And this was specifically for um, these profit centers that were looking to expand internationally. Uh, and these entities were, were created and set up like traditional trading companies where they would buy and sell uh, Teledyne products for their own account. Um, but it would also allow them to, to um, have a base that, that understood the international logistics and the accommodations and, and all the rules and kind of the lay of the land for that territory. Um, so that was, that was just, I thought, pretty interesting in terms of kind of the management and hierarchy of how everything kind of flowed through Teledyne. And just a, a short follow-up. In, in, uh, in most of the serial acquirers we look at, at now, decentralization is really key of, of what they do. And um, in my, my impression is that Teledyne was, was really decentralized, but, but also I mean, had, a, had a clear structure, as you described. How different was that compared to the regular U.S. company at the time? And how is it today? Maybe if you can describe how the environment in the U.S. is today in terms of centralization. Yeah, I think it, I think it was uh, it really different then. Um, you know, I mean, that was an era where uh, conglomerates were all the rage, uh, but there was a lot of bloating internally and, and layers upon layers of management. Um, so that part, that... Uh, I think was unique in that Teledyne really tried to minimize those layers. Um, that was that was really interesting. Um, I think there is an element today that uh, allows for decentralization um, in American businesses and autonomy, um, but with an adamant amount of oversight. Right, like there's there's KPIs and and, and things like that that uh, you can you can force down to that level. Um, but then there's still an eye at the at the at the central uh, component that's that's keeping an eye on it. Um, I don't know. That'd be interesting to kind of think through more in, in terms of how those compare uh, in today's environment versus historically. Yeah. Why I asked the question is that typically in, in Sweden, many companies are highly decentralized, and and what we often hear is that like in the U.S., it's it's uh, much more centralized, and in in the Euro, in especially in maybe. Uh, the rest of Europe, it's it's more centralized as well. But um, I just, I mean, it's it's different in different businesses, and and it's just interesting to hear from your perspective in the U.S. It's, how how there, you feel about it. There's also a, a fascinating. I don't know if I want to go as far as call it a sigma, but but there's a component in the U.S. where um, people are very cautious regarding serial acquirers. Uh, they, you know, it's not this model that that a lot of um, 
equity analyst, uh, I guess, really get or embrace. Um, and I think a lot of that is just because so many acquisitions in the U.S. are these make or break, huge, huge acquisitions. And um, when you have executives who aren't really um, in their circle of competence when it comes to to allocating capital, a lot of times that's a mishap, and it and it you know it, it burns the organization. So I think there's this 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 cautious outlook when it comes to entities that do acquisitions. Um, and then naturally, if you're not, you know, doing acquisitions on, on a regular rate, you're, you're probably going to be more centralized, um, and just to have your thumb over, over, uh, divisions and whatnot, a little bit, a little bit tighter than a decentralized serial acquirer would. And one important aspect of decentralized business is that you need to have some incentives in place for the people working there. So how did Teledyne work with uh, incentives? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that was that was really it was cool about how Teledyne set up their operations, um, you know, they would have again you have this decentralized organization, um, but they would have these company newsletters that would talk about different initiatives that different profit centers were doing, um, different knowledge component feedbacks, things of that nature, uh, and that was that was really uh, kind of a hive mindset of how to how to uh, share best practices. But um, within that, they would also broadcast out um, the results of, they called it the Triple Crown Award. And it was for companies that would set records on sales, net income, and net cash flow. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool to see that, they, hey, they were prioritizing this and then that, that recognition that would go along with it. Um, and then Henry Singleton, he, was, he certainly used um, stock options to, to attract and retain high caliber management. Um, so I think, you know, that might be an area where I wish George Roberts had, had dived in more, you know, how they structured those incentive systems. Um, but I can tell you, you know, a big part of that was was following the progress of those entities and, and utilizing the Teledyne return, um, which was that average of your cash return and your profit. Um, so there were incentive systems in place. There were there were some clear benchmarks and, and cultural uh, tel- Teledyne type lingo to, to help drive um, those those marks for their internal employees. Now, something else that we have seen when we have looked at serial acquires for some time is that some companies choose to rebrand the business units while others, they do nothing and just leave them. Uh, so what are the pros and cons as you see it and what can we learn from Teledyne in this aspect? Yeah, uh, I think I think with Teledyne, it's it's very good case study of both both pros and cons. Um, again, Teledyne would utilize these new technologies to make um, their bid for government contracts that much more competitive, right? Um, and then anytime you're dealing with contracts of those size, there's a component of reputation that's needed. Um, and the fact that Teledyne was this this large company that was publicly traded that had you know um, this a balance sheet that looks like X, it would it would allow them to, to be that much more competitive in those government contract um, bids. I think the con of this and, and something that unfolded at Teledyne, um, eventually they ran into a lawsuit uh, from the government because there's this discrepancy in the bids um, on these military contracts versus their, their commercial clients. And so going back to branding, you know, on one hand, you saw the, the benefits of having you know, a united brand. Um, 
but the con was that when Teledyne got uh, tangled up in this lawsuit, you know, that can potentially jeopardize the entire brand of entities that aren't even related, right? And I think that just magnifies in today's environment where anyone can run a quick Google search and you're going to have news articles populate that that talk about a situation. Um, so, yeah, those are, I think, are more of the pros and cons. I was impressed studying Teledyne. Again, their systems were so dialed in when they would acquire a business, um, everything from the typeface to be used in press releases to the uh, the logos that the business and, and where it was positioned, all of that was templated uh, to, to really give a uniform look so that the businesses could operate individually. But if you looked at all of the Teledyne um, businesses together, you would see this, this uniform look between the different uh, profit centers. And um, I mean, Going back a bit to to Henry Singleton and and his capital allocation skills, uh, he definitely was a, a thoughtful capital allocator. And I mean, some uh, I mean the most managers use maybe one or two tools, but Singleton had it all more or less. He issued equity at high valuations to acquire companies. He bought back stocks, uh, stock in Intelladyne at low valuations. He paid stock dividends and and also did numerous spin-offs. Can you try and untangle this a bit for us? <laughs> yeah, I can. I can. I can do my best. Um, you know, we uh, we talked a little bit about the '60s, right? That was the period where acquisitions were um, the bread and butter of Teledyne. They were building the the base of the company. Um, as as the business evolves to the late '60s, it's clear that the value has ran up in. Um, the these these smaller private businesses and it and it's just not there the price you have to pay to acquire them um so that's when singleton and george roberts decide hey it's it's uh it's time to shut down the acquisition machine um the problem with that is that all of a sudden cash starts building up on the balance sheet right and um one observation about henry singleton and i think i've already said it but he, he really understood how to invest on both sides of the balance sheet he knew he knew how to allocate capital. So as you transition out of the 60s, cash is building. Um, and then I believe it was it was 1972 where Singleton had this, this, um, this realization, the best move to allocate capital was to actually buy back shares of Teledyne. And uh, it was kind of unorthodox at the time because, you know, Wall Street viewed any, any sort of buyback as there's something wrong with the company. Um, so, Singleton goes out and uh, he uh, originally, I think it's, he, he offers, uh, you know, a tender of 1 million shares at 20, uh, 20 bucks. And instead he gets 8.9 million shares and he's like, oh, it's, it's a total fluke, right? Um, and then to his surprise, um, instead of, of the, the stock price increasing, it actually declines, right? So he goes out and he does another tender. And I think this time he gets like 0.8 million shares, but he gets there at like 14. Um, but this is, you know, so those were the, the first two buybacks. Um, but then you really you see again, the ingenuity of Singleton, he realizes that, um, more than cash, what people want are these fixed, uh, fixed income. Um, uh, you know, they, they have this appetite for fixed income. So he starts actually swapping bonds for stocks. And I believe, uh, over the course, he, you know, he buys back shares for, uh, 12 years starting 1972. And um, he does something like 
four times in cash, four times in bonds. But uh, he ends up retiring something like 90% of the total shares out there. And I think there's some quote about Charlie Man- uh, that Charlie Munger had on Teledyne and uh, Singleton. He was like, nobody has ever bought back shares as aggressively as Henry Singleton. So, um, you know, truly fascinating in that component. Um, the other thing that you, you start to see is in the late 70s, uh, he was issuing these dividends starting in the mid 60s. Um, he was issuing these dividends. Um, but the late 70s, the yield on those started climbing to eight and a half, ten percent 10%, which uh, again, late 70s, he's, he's, uh, people know he's doing buybacks. So there's probably less and less value there. And I think that just gives you more inclination to what his thinkings were regarding where value was and, and using dividend as a, as a tool when he didn't really see um, a ton of value out there. Um, just kind of untangling it a little further in the eighties, you know, he was more um, into actual like investing in public companies and, and really found value in buying pieces of public companies versus doing entire acquisitions. Um, again, I think this was uh just a little less understood at the time that, Hey, you could run a company and and have all these operating businesses. And as opposed to allocating capital internally into those operations, sometimes it was better to go out and buy, um, up, uh, you know, shares of other companies and, and do it at a more uh, minority position, which was, which was interesting. So yeah, to your point, he had a ton of tools, a ton of levers, um, really just, uh, just a, a textbook case of, of capital allocation viewed uh, through different periods um, of the economy. And I mean, he, he really took advantage of uh, of the temperature of the market, so to speak. I mean, when he issued these, um, when he issued the stocks to buy companies, I mean, the valuation of, of Teledyne was some, somewhere around fifty p or fifty, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then in the seventies, it, it was uh, like uh, single digits. So, yeah. um, I mean. Um, was that due to the conglomerate era, I mean, having an end? And, and as, as you said, I mean, investors uh, really disliked conglomerates at, at that stage. Or Absolutely, yeah. The, the conglomerates, you know, heydays in the 60s. And then it was just, they totally deflated after that. And um, it's, uh, I think Henry Singleton, he, he also understood, um, he was so familiar with a lot of these conglomerates because he studied them and took the best components to kind of build his blueprint for Teledyne. So uh, at one point, I think it was his old employer, uh, Little, maybe um, they had some issue that occurred and Singleton took half of his equity. It wasn't half, it was a quarter of his equity portfolio. So 25% of it, put it all in that single company. Um, I mean, he had confidence from, from understanding these, these other businesses and uh again when you're when you're doing that in an environment where conglomerates weren't popular you know you're going to get some good returns um on those investments as well and and that's why he did it as opposed to reinvesting in those those operating profit centers that that teledyne had because in the 1970s i mean the economic environment was really tough for many businesses and even if you know how to use all the tools in the toolbox if you don't have any cash at hand you can't can't do that much so it was quite impressive how much they were able to grow organically yeah absolutely absolutely and that was mostly just because they had really good businesses or what are your thoughts on that 
Oh, on, on the organic growth. Yeah. I think they had really good uh, businesses. I also think they had that infrastructure that Teledyne had stitched together in the early sixties. Um, another thing that they focused on um, Singleton was very adamant about profit centers, closing down low margin businesses. Uh, so, you know, that was something they were always like encouraging and preaching and everything else. And, and that kind of weaves through the Teledyne return and, and um, that hurdle rate of 20% return on assets. So I think they had those components that helped them on top of this, this infrastructure that Henry Singleton weaved together in the sixties. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that Singleton was really adamant about doing was during economic downturns, um, they would, uh, they kind of had a checklist of things that they would go through to shore up the books. Um, I mean, they would they would start shipping products a lot slower to customers who who were behind on their bills, and they would get really gr- aggressive on um, collections. and And Henry Singleton just knew it's again, this is kind of the genius of him. He he understood really how to maximize that cash conversion cycle and when to to let it. Um, when to let it extend and what point of the economic cycle and when to really like tighten it up. And obviously that feeds through to a lot of the returns and uh, more on the organic side uh, during those seventies. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the topic of dividends. And that's something we discuss often with uh, investors and serial acquired sure. companies here in Sweden. And we all know that Buffett, he, he doesn't pay any dividends and has never done. But in Sweden, it's considered a quality mark. Many institutional investors for pension funds, they demand it. And it is, of course, also viewed as this yield for, for the owners. But on the other hand, I mean, one of the great benefits of serial acquires is their ability to reinvest profits at high returns consistently uh, over long times. And, and that makes it quite inefficient to pay out dividends. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly correct. You know, what makes a good serial acquire attractive is the opportunity sets they have to redeploy capital. Um, so unless it's this unusual circumstance um, or there just really aren't any levers for management to pull, um, I don't want I don't want the dividend. You know, a lot of times their their opportunity sets are even better than than what I can find. Um, especially when you are looking at these these acquirers who focus on these smaller companies that that you can scoop up at, at a lot lower multiples. So, um, you know, I, I'd rather have uh, no dividend, but if it's um, a choice between dividend or uh, poor capital allocation, um, obviously, you know, I'll take the dividend. Um, I think what makes serial acquirers so unique is that, a core competency of executives is allocating capital. And um, the flip side of that, when you're not uh, really attuned to these um, these acquisitions, you might not be as comfortable um, with, with allocating capital. And, and for some executives, they'll have cash built up on the balance sheet and they feel like they have to do something, you know, to justify it. And, uh, they'll make these poor decisions in terms of taking on projects that, that really just have uh, overall inadequate returns. And uh, in those situations, it, I think a dividend is nice because it's, it's almost a sense of focus of, okay, you know, we got to raise the dividend. We, we've got to keep it at this, at this uh, yield. Um, 
and it's it's almost uh, a safety belt for some of these executives who uh, otherwise I think might might squander uh, capital in terms of how they're they're allocating it. Yeah, but as you said, preferably they are such good capital allocators that you want them to keep keep the profits. And Singleton's conviction was that the cash definitely was better employed in growing Teledyne's different businesses. But what I think is interesting is, as you mentioned before, in 1970, Teledyne actually introduced these stock dividends where shareholders receive new shares and then they can decide if they want to keep owning them or sell them. So I'm I'm curious, what do you think about this concept? I'm, I wasn't familiar of it before. Yeah, I, I love the concept. Um, I, I actually, I would love to find a company that does something similar. Uh, I'm not not too aware of anyone today but uh i what i love about that it's it's nice if you're actually in the business of of valuing businesses and you want to control your tax liability right um it and i can talk a little bit about that just it's it's based off the the sure fact that you can um choose when you actually sell that piece and incur that tax liability so that portion is is nice um uh, if it's if it's done a certain way, uh, what makes I think it difficult is a lot of people aren't following the business on a day to day basis, and so um, they're not going to want to do some sort of uh, of computation to see if you know when they are are selling those shares if if the company's undervalued, overvalued, whatever. Um, so a cash dividend is a lot easier for them um, in those circumstances. So it's I can see pros and cons to both, um, but in general, you know that's that's one of the things I think uh, I love to see, and, and and I like it when uh, companies I actually like when companies do split their stocks because then you can um, kind of just peel off pieces as you need it um, and incur those tax liabilities along the way versus taking that that dividend right there or having to sell out or sell off um, a larger amount than you need. So. Personally, I like it, but uh, I don't know if it'll become too popular anytime soon. We will see. The other option is to to split into a B share. Yeah. We've seen one example of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but for Teledyne, I mean, they actually chose to split up the business. Mm-hmm. And um, that sounds a bit unfamiliar. I mean, many of the serial acquirers here, here in the Northeast, they say that they are forever uh, owners of the businesses that they acquire. Uh, why did Teledyne split up? Yeah, so I think at a certain point, and conglomerates have always struggled with this, you get to a point where uh, the value placed on the business, um, it's, it, it differs from what is actually the intrinsic uh, value. So what, what, what the business is being priced at is different from that intrinsic value. And that theory exists, you know, if you, if you split up, you can provide more transparency and the market realizes that and then that feeds all into your your cost of capital cost of equity um i think another you know really one of the better arguments regarding uh spinning off businesses is when you have talented management at the head of that business unit and uh you know that you know to keep them to to keep them motivated they they want to run their own show and um I think in those senses, it makes a lot more sense because you can get a lot of employees uh, rowing in the same direction with a more clear goal of, hey, this is this is the value we're driving uh, for the business, as opposed to um, if they are under 
um, just a, a giant conglomerate or, or holding company where there's less uh, feedback regarding the value that they're creating they're creating for the entity. Yeah, and there's also the the challenge of, challenge of uh, succession, and that was something that Teledyne faced, and was one reason why they broke up the businesses, as I understood it from the book, right? Yeah, I believe so. I'd, I'd have to go back and check on that, but I believe so. Because uh, we spoke to our common friend Adam Mead quite yeah. recently about his masterpiece on, on Berkshire, and and there I asked a bit about why he thinks that Berkshire should not be broken up into pieces, and and he says that it's there are so many synergies within the Berkshire group. It's such a special uh, constellation of companies that it's better to actually keep it like that. Yeah, yeah, no fun in keeping it on uh, Constellation software there, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is there something that you don't agree with, with Singleton on or think that he should have done differently? You know, it's hard to... Um... It's hard to critique like one of your heroes, right? Like uh, it's it, it's a tough task. Uh, I would say one of the things that surprised me about Henry Singleton, um, a lot of times when he would spin off these businesses, he was adamant about retaining the real estate. And um, that just kind of came as a surprise to me, um, especially considering the returns he generated on acquiring and owning businesses. Um, it could have been just the the environment and where things were, but it, it seems like that was a constant through throughout his uh, spinoff period. So it could just be another form of of the ingenuity. He knew how to strip out the assets that were valuable and and, and sell off the you know less valuable pieces. Um, but that was that was somewhat surprising to me. Um, the other thing too, you know, it, it's it, what you admire so much about Berkshire is is there was a model there that understood how to to scale. And I think that um, Singleton's model, it was, again, you see that first constraint regarding just stitching these companies together on the technology front. And he does diversify away from that and it, and it becomes more profit generated. Um, but sometimes I wonder if, if there was more focus regarding, uh, again, the qualitative components of, of those businesses, if, if um, you know, if that was kind of like how Buffett transitioned from a net net investor to uh, more of a qualitative type of growth, uh, growth at reasonable prices uh, type of investor, I wonder how much further uh, Teledyne could have gone. But again, that's for me, that's splitting hairs. Um, it's <laughs> what he did was phenomenal. And, and the, the genius of it was he was doing a lot of uh, maneuvers that were unique and new for that time period. Whereas now we have, you know, case studies and textbooks that we can kind of draw from. So, iconoclastic was the word that uh, William Thorndike used to describe mm, uh, like him and many of the other outsiders. Yeah, going uh, going against the current. Yeah, absolutely. And we started this conversation with uh, you buying stocks at an early age, and and now you have founded and are the manager of MCJ Capital Partners. So, can you tell us what ha- what happened during this period and and about the firm? Yeah. So, I mean, a little bit about us, um, small shop, I intend on keeping it that way. Um, you know, I really, I like to find small companies, um, especially in the serial acquire space. Uh, I really go after these capacity constraint type of setups where bigger asset bases, they just can't pursue them yet, um, because of size. And, uh, when we find businesses that are, that are small and they've got a long runway and a dialed in system, especially serial acquires of that nature, um, it's fun to really, get in and, and be owners. 
a lot earlier in the process before uh, institutions can pile in and, and that sort of thing. So that's a little bit. Just How many me, are you at this? Uh, just me. I usually bring on um, an analyst intern um, every semester that just helps with research and, and gathering all that. So. And the fund is open or, or is it closed or how does yeah, that Yeah, we, we operate in separately managed accounts. Um, so a pretty nice structure. Um, and uh, yeah, we're currently open uh, accepting new investors. And I mean, maybe we can go a bit deeper into the, I mean, why you like the serial acquirer model so so much as, as you seem to do. Uh, I mean, when, when I think about this as an investor, I've always thought that these companies can reinvest uh, all or most of their profits into buying companies uh, at, at low valuations, meaning a, a high rate, rate of return. Um, and, and it's this repeatability. It's not only the serial acquirer. It's also, I mean, maybe if you look at, for example, Walmart's journey, how they, how they grew. It was kind of a blueprint for, for success with, uh, that you could see a, a long duration. Uh, so it's, I mean, when you compare this to a, like a software company that, that may have great rates of, of, of return, mm-hmm. uh, there's an issue with reinvestment. So maybe, maybe you can oh. dig deeper into that. Yeah, spot on. I mean, I believe, you know, the valuation of a firm largely follows that sustainable rate of return on those reinvested earnings. So I- exactly what you're talking about regarding that duration uh, piece. And when you study a company that's solely dependent on organic growth, um, I find those circumstances almost less comfortable than, say, a firm that is competent and really dialed in on how they reallocate capital uh, specifically towards acquisitions. Um, to me, it's just it's a lot more intuitive. It's it's a lot. It makes more sense. Um, uh, it's it's strange. At again, at a very young age, I I fell in love with this model of a conglomerate. I I remember coming across it and. Um, it was the concept was almost it was hypnotic. It was this idea that you could have a business that performs well across all different economic cycles and be diversified and and actually expand into other businesses. Um, obviously, if you study history, you realize the '60s took that way too far. Um, but uh, it, it's 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 a phenomenal uh, model, and a natural extension of that is is stumbling into the world of serial acquirers and the different types of serial acquirers. Um, and to me, those models just make a lot more intuitive sense than um, other types of businesses that I look at. And regarding the the climate for these type of, of businesses, we saw uh, the last year, twenty twenty one, it was a like a boom year for for serial acquirers and really aggressive acquirers got uh, premiums for for being that aggressive. But mm-hmm. that's completely switched uh, in in twenty twenty two. Yeah. Uh, Maybe, maybe if you can tell us about a serial acquirer that, that you like and, and why, and, and what do you think about the, the current climate and, and how that is for, for yeah, this type of business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it, it's hard not to mention Constellation software, but I feel like there's so much about that. Um, I don't know how much value I can add to that conversation. Um, and full disclosure, we, we own Constellation. Um, another serial acquirer, though, a smaller one that I think uh, maybe your listeners are less familiar with is Redishred Capital Corp. I don't know if you've you've um, done any work on them or if you're familiar. And again, full disclosure, we own those in the accounts we manage. Um, but Redishred Capital Corp, they uh, it's a roll up strategy for on site document destruction. Um, it's a it's a sleepy industry, highly fragmented, low growth. Um, you know, it's not going to generate 
exciting headlines by any means. Um, but what makes Reddish Red particularly interesting, I think, uh, they're out there, they're acquiring independent operators, but they're also acquiring um, franchisees. And this is a model that I've studied and I'm, I'm trying to do more research on and maybe I'll, I'll put out a paper on it. But um, this dynamic of being able to have a franchise platform and then layer it with a serial acquire component where you're reacquiring those franchises, um, that's, it's, it's very interesting if you think about those dynamics there. Um, because essentially... A franchisee is going out, they're fronting the capital. Um, not only are they fronting the capital, they're paying the franchisor to actually operate and develop a territory. And once that is mature, um, the the franchisor, so like Red Shred Capital Corp, they go in and they acquire these territories from retiring owners, these franchisees. And when they step to the table, they're the most sophisticated buyer um, in that relationship. Cause they know what this business is doing base rates compared to its other territories. They've got, you know, an audited track, uh, tra uh track record and flow of the business operation. Um, they, they've seen how it's performed in different climates. They've, you know, they've got an inside look at this thing. Um, and they know that the territory is proven. Um, so I, it's, it's a fascinating model. There's a few other companies out there, uh, that, that are doing something similar. Um, but yeah, Reddish Red, I, I really like it. It's small in size. There's some economies of scale kicking in. Uh, they've got product lines outside of shredding. Um, I think, you know, where you get to the kind of hair of the investment is there is commodity exposure because they, uh, they generate uh, nice income from, from selling that recycled paper. Um, right now, recycled paper prices are, are through the roof, so they're benefiting. Um, but uh, it's... Yeah, it's it's a company I really admire. And it's small in size, and maybe it's less uh, less known to your listeners. And how do you think in terms of valuation? Uh, in terms of valuation of of Reddish Red, like yep. exact. Well, I I don't like to to give my exact price point because um, we could be buying if it's if it's below that. But um, okay, in general then. Yeah, yeah. In in general, I think it's I think it's very well priced. Um, where it is right now uh it's at a, a, a i think a significant diff, uh, discount even if you strip out um you know it, kind of this boom in paper prices um you can do some searching there's there's some good uh, uh there were some acquisitions regarding other document destruction companies out there and, and what those buyout uh buyouts for the total company um was for and stuff so yeah and uh, we may have confused some of our listeners. I mean, we have been talking about serial acquirers, conglomerates, roll-ups. How do you classify, I mean, what we call serial acquirers? Can you can you describe how you classify them? Um, there's actually, there's a great write-up out there. I'm sure you guys have come across it. Uh, Scott Management, they did, uh, he put out a paper regarding his categorization. I, I thought it was superb and um very similar to, to how I think about serial acquirers in terms of you have like a roll up, a platform accumulator, and then a holding company. Um, I would say how I think of things a little bit differently is uh, a fifth category regarding conglomerates. Um, and for me, a true conglomerate is an entity that, you know, it's diversified in its operations um, across different verticals. Um, but it also has some sort of financial arm um, attached to it. So like a Teledyne, like a Berkshire, something of that nature. Um, but yeah, usually when I'm looking at serial acquirers, I'm, I'm using those five buckets and 
and putting um, companies in them. So like Reddish Red is, is more of a roll up. It's, it's very much isolated to document destruction. Um, so that's, yeah, that's how I think through those. And the last section we typically want to discuss in, in the podcast is, is book, books, of course. And I mean, we know that, that you like to read and we want to know, I mean, how do you allocate your time between reading and, and uh, maybe researching investing cases and so on? Yeah, uh, for me, a lot of it, it's just, it's kind of intermixed. It's, uh, I'll, I'll be doing work on a company and uh, it, you know, makes me pull a, a book off my shelf and, and look at something um, that I've read before or revisit notes um, or I'll, I'll do some work on a company and I'll, um, I'll go out and, um, I'll, you know, any resource I can get, I'll, I'll, you know, purchase those books or get a hold of them and, and just go to town using that as, as part of the, the research process. So, um, I almost don't even separate the two, to be honest. Um, but really with, with reading, I find myself more and more gravitating towards, um, the historical accounts of these companies that are are developed in autobiographies and industry historical um, write-ups and things of that nature. I find that really fascinating in, in a way to um, to look at uh, industry dynamics and how they unfold and, and those competitive positions within the industry and how those have changed over the decades. I think I, I was really happy, I mean, reading this this book, Distant Force, that we have discussed today. And I mean, we have had a few of these titles discussed, where which is a bit unknown for, for other investors. I mean, we, we had an interview with uh, Avner Mandelman on, on the Sleuth Investor. And I think that's another one that's, I mean, it's, it's not really known in, in this community, but it, it brings huge value for us as investors. Can you mention maybe one or two titles that you think are are other titles that you think are underrated among investors? Yeah. So Sleuth Investor, it's, that's a great, like, you know, how to, uh, it's, it's an enjoyable read too. Um, I, two that come to mind, um, one of my all time favorites is uh, Robert Gordon's The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Uh, I think it is a phenomenal 30,000 foot view account of how microeconomics and industry dynamics developed in the United States. Um, and it's just so well quantified of, Hey, this happened. And then the, this produced, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's just, it's such a good book. Um, it's, I, it, I put it this way. I, I'll take that on like a vacation and read if, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just looking for something that I, I just, I love that stuff. Um, another book I find really underrated is, um, junk to gold. Uh, so it's the story of Copart and uh written by willis johnson and and uh again full disclosure you know we own copart and um the accounts we manage but uh it's it's similar it has a similar feel i think um to uh, uh to robert's uh book on teledyne in the sense that it's just it's more of a gritty account uh and it really talks about those details of those early days and what they were thinking what they were doing and and um with that book what I love about it is you can really see the full strategy, but you can also get a feel for how the culture of Copart uh, evolved. And I think that's just, it, it's fascinating when you get those front row seats and those, those uh, firsthand accounts of, of how um, a business comes to be. And I really enjoyed that book. So those would be my two uh, recommendations. Would be fun to discuss those uh, another time. Yeah, we'd love it. We'd love it. 
Well, thank you so much, Carter, for coming on Investing by the Books podcast and sharing your thoughts on on distant force and also talking a bit about your uh, investment style. Is there something else you want to uh, add before we finish up here? I don't. I don't believe so. It was a it was a great time. So thanks so much for having me. And lastly, where can our audience uh, follow you and your work? Yeah, they can they can go to uh, our website mcjcapitalpartners.com um, or I'm on Twitter uh, Carter Johnson twenty three. So um, yeah. That's uh, that's where you can find me. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes and look forward to seeing you in Omaha 2023. That sounds great, guys. I can't wait. Thank you, Carter. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.